Hello everyone, it's February 27th, 2024. So the Nova Sea lander has landed, but not exactly as it was supposed to. Slim landed on its head, Nova Sea on its side, but we still have a handful more landers to go this year. One's about to land on its feet. Nevertheless, Nova Sea is doing well, so let's find out why and how and lift off. In news for the Tower, welcome to episode 448 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Uh, so, Dennis, what do SpaceX and the Bahamas have to do with each other? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is brilliant. The Bahamas kind of want to take advantage of the fact that they are, you know, a nation off the east coast of uh, Florida, where we launch a lot of rockets. And so they've uh, actually signed, like, uh, letters of agreement with SpaceX to allow SpaceX to land their Falcon 9 boosters on drone ships closer to the Bahamas and kind of in return, the Bahamas will uh, get to basically make it kind of a tourist thing. Like, hey, <laughs> you're on vacation, want to check out a, uh, a, a first stage Falcon 9 booster land? Just come check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really or, neat. Or maybe more like, hey, you're thinking about going to the Bahamas or a different place for your vacation? Why don't you come here instead? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are these landings like on drone ships still? That's my understanding. Yeah, they, that they wouldn't be landing on Bahamian uh, pads, but rather just on drone ships. But they have to – currently, I think the drone ships are in international waters, but they'd be allowed into the Bahamas uh, waters if – you know, with this kind of deal. So you get closer to shore. Various shores, I guess I should say, since there's multiple islands. <laughs> so as it stands right now – What's the difference? Like, I guess SpaceX just can't land boosters in in those waters because they're not international? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So they're further away. Because I would think there would also be safety concerns as well, that that would be the bigger issue. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, this can be done in a way where it wouldn't be too inconvenient, although you would need, you know, to clear out like any boats and they would be downrange and all that. I mean, I don't don't know. It it seems like it might be more trouble than it's worth, but if they want to do it, I suppose they can. Those are good points. Actually seeing the details get ironed out will be interesting, but yeah. I mean, you know, I I try looking it up, but I have to imagine that a big part of uh, the Bahamas uh, GDP is tourism related. And so something like this that can, you know, contribute significantly to that to some extent. Maybe, yeah. be worth it. I don't know. I mean, I've seen boosters come back myself at the Cape, and it's pretty amazing. I don't know if I would take a vacation somewhere specifically just to see that, but maybe it's just because <laughs> I've seen it once, and I was like, okay, that's cool. But, <laughs> you know. Well, maybe like Ben says, that'll be what kind of uh, is the uh, tiebreaker between choosing yeah. to go to the Bahamas or Bermuda or somewhere else uh, yeah. in the Caribbean. At first, when you brought this up, I thought you were talking about a starship first stage for some reason. I, yeah, I don't know why I, ah. I thought I would just say that. Yeah. <laughs> for a hot Sorry. second, then I was like, wait, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. Wait. <laughs> the IM-1 landing follow-up. I think I said in the intro to last week's episode that this would be the first of many uh, discussions about lunar landers, and so here we are the next week. Which I mean, I kind of knew that was going to happen anyway. Well, this is yeah. our this is our third IM one alone. Yeah, and there's like what four more landers I think scheduled for this <laughs> year to touch down on the moon. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of moon talk uh, this year. But uh, yeah, so it touched down on the 22nd, what like three days ago, uh, but it came down on its side. So this is just a. Uh, I mean, this seems to be a common occurrence here. And was it last week, Dennis, you had said that maybe the, I guess you could say like the aspect ratio that maybe it was a little bit too tall. And I didn't think so, but I guess you were right. (laughs) Um, And to be honest, I didn't fully appreciate how 
tall this thing was. So 4.3 meters, that's like, I think like 14, 15 feet, something like that. Uh-huh. It's big. I didn't, I don't know why I was thinking it was smaller than it actually was, but yeah, it's a pretty large spacecraft. It did seem a little troublingly tall. And so, yeah, but Slim wasn't. True. Slim was, Slim the other was way special yeah. though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was special because it was supposed to tip over and it tipped over the wrong way, but I mean, it, it kind of suffered from the same issue. It had yeah. too much lateral velocity. And that's something that I wanted to know more about just because I was trying to piece together exactly what happened, what went right, what went wrong. And it seems that we had something go wrong, which we'll you know talk about, but then they did find a workaround, but it still came in kind of hot. Then it had that lateral motion and I didn't find any explanations to why that was like, is this just, you know, maybe the, you know, software just was not as good as they had hoped, something like that. I don't know. But if you have any thoughts on that. You'd assume it has something to do with the, like the train relative navigation. Well, that, I guess that's um, higher up, but like the, the hazard avoidance stuff, like the optical stuff, like it's hard to do. And like, I don't know, unless they, unless they shut down uh, the cameras as they were coming down and then they're. Uh, accelerometers just had more error build up quicker than they expected. Yeah, I don't know what else it could be. To be clear, like, I don't have another best guess, right? Like, I, there are plenty of things that it could have been that aren't that, but I just don't, I don't have them ready to go. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, so it was supposed to be descending at about, this is all taken from the press conference, and, you know, this is an American company, so I'm just going to do miles per hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, it was supposed to be coming in at, or it was supposed to be descending at two miles per hour with zero sideways motion, but instead it was coming in at six miles per hour and it was actually moving sideways at two miles per hour. So that was not good. They had spoken in the press conference about a phase of the descent called breaking one, but there was no mention of breaking two. So I don't know what that is, but uh, breaking one is when uh, they're basically trying to go from 3,600 miles per hour to just 30 miles per hour in the space of, well, I forget how long, but in the space of a few minutes, obviously. I think it is a couple of minutes, isn't it? Like I Like, I think it's literally like, Two or three minutes. Something like that. Just, just from like the live stream, like how long it took to go from ignition to landing. So we'll say a couple minutes at T minus 120 seconds, which is two minutes. Uh, they, you know, have to do a pitch over and this causes a loss of comms, which is to be expected because they have to switch antennas because obviously the antennas that they have been using are no longer facing earth. And so that all happened, you know, according to plan, the touchdown, they actually did register what they called an adverse yaw. So clearly, and this is, you know, what all the speculation is, is that there was a leg that had snagged a rock or something and it had sort of twisted or spun the lander around. It tripped. Tripped it, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so it, it caught on something. But interestingly, it was actually supposed to do a turn on a nominal landing because it had to have a certain orientation because this is a polar landing and it has to be facing the sun. Or rather, you want the solar panels to face the sun and the other side of the spacecraft, which is basically painted black, you want that you know to be facing away. That would actually require a yaw at the last second. But I don't think that that's what this was. Yeah, so something kind of, you know, spun it around a little bit. As far as the touchdown prior to, you know, the off-nominal landing, there actually does seem to be agreement that it was coming in pretty much like perfectly upright. So you have the IMU data, you have the navigation Doppler radar, plus you have cameras on board, and they all seem to pretty much agree that this was a good, solid, like vertical landing. So that's good. I mean, you know, this was not coming in at an angle, and that's why it tipped over. It was actually a good descent. It just had a little bit too much sideways motion, and it tripped on a rock. And so once it came to rest, it looks like 
It's actually slightly propped up because obviously the legs stick out, but the main body of the spacecraft seems to be pretty much more or less horizontal. So this can only mean like one of two things, and that's that the head of the spacecraft, if you will, is like propped up on a rock or that the legs are in some kind of a ditch or slight crevice. Mm. When it had first landed, I don't know if you watched the live stream. I actually did. I managed to yeah, remember to watch it. They did say that, you know, we're sure that this lander had touched down. It's on the moon. They were very confident about that. And I think at a certain point, they had said at least that they thought it was upright. And apparently this was due to the fuel measurement in the tanks. And so they have mm. a way of measuring the fuel along two axes. And it appeared that the fuel had been settled along the x-axis, which would indicate that it was vertical. But in fact, that was like stale data, they had said. Um, and instead, the fuel was settling along the z-axis, which would indicate that it was sideways. So I guess that's where that little discrepancy had happened. Um, and that took about what, like, like almost a full day or so. I mean, I don't know how long it took them to actually make that determination, but you know, that's about how long it took before we knew for sure that it had landed on its side. Yeah. I was just thinking, so one of the payloads had the downward aimed cameras to try to check out the interaction of the exhaust plume with the, the regolith. And I wonder, you know, if that is operating during the final descent, if we'd be able to actually catch exactly what happened to tip it over on camera. Um, I don't know if that's feasible or not, but how it's I don't designed, remember but... if, they, if they're collecting data on the way down. I thought it was just stereoscopic imaging once they landed. No, I think that that was the whole point, right? Was to oh, okay. collect the imagery of the exhaust plume, right? Yeah, this specific payload, the, the scalps, the, uh, the LP stands for lunar plume surface study. Like, I think that's what the, the LP is. The yeah, that sounds about right. So... But yeah, um, I I hadn't heard anybody say any of that, so it's just a total like me uh, keeping my fingers crossed and hoping that that's something that's possible. But the fact that no one's mentioned that, oh, and this might be a way for us to figure out and learn more about exactly what happened during the final approach makes it me a little less confident that we'll be able to see something interesting from it. But who knows? <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. I think that you're right though, because they did talk about eventually getting that imagery. Um, they just haven't done it yet, you know, because that's a pretty large amount of data. And from what I gather, they're going to be working with the low gain antennas and it's going to like, they're going to have to triage exactly what they want from this vehicle. Um, so, yeah. but I think that that actually is on the top priority list. So yeah, they probably will get that imagery and you probably will be able to see maybe, I mean, I don't know, the, the cameras are kind of pointed towards, you know, the plume or towards the center of the vehicle's landing site, hmm. not towards the other legs. So you probably, I mean, you might not be able to see anything. I don't know, but I mean, yeah. it's, it is possible. Well, what would be pretty cool is if they also wind up getting back images after the landing uh, from scalps, hopefully <laughs> one of the pairs of cameras uh, is horizontal looking out at the horizon so that we can get, uh, good stereoscopic images of the moon, which I don't, I don't know if we've really gotten before. Definitely of Mars. Um, I feel like the ones of the moon are, are probably going to be like from a rover taking a step to the side and taking a second photo, but like that could be pretty cool for like public relation, like just seeing a, a cool picture is a true scare stereoscopic image. From the bottom of yeah. the tipped over lander. <laughs> yeah, so Ben, uh, given the fact that it face planted, essentially, again, uh, kind of like Slim did, I imagine a question a lot of people had was, well, what side is facing down and does that include cameras or deployables or any of the instruments that would not be able to function? And it turns out that 
basically, it landed on the best possible side it could have because there's only one payload there described as a passive payload, and it's Ben's favorite. It is the Jeff Koons artwork of the little mini moons. The mini moons are kind of what are pinned down. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I like that because that just means that the mini moons are closer to the real moon. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at least this way, uh, the the other actual science payloads can actually do their work. But apparently, they're still going to try to get pictures of it, and I don't know what that means. Like, I guess, like, what was the purpose of this payload anyway? Like, was it going to be set down on the moon or something, or was it just going to stay there on the lander and just? I don't think it was going to be, gonna be separated. Lander? Maybe it. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to stay there, but but I guess getting a picture of it was kind of part of it being. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, considered a success, maybe. But yeah, so I guess we should talk about exactly what happened during the landing. Um, what went wrong? So the orbital insertion was slightly too elliptical, and so they just wanted to get a better idea of exactly how this landing was going to go if, you know, the orbit is not as was predicted. So they decided to turn on the LIDAR, and that didn't happen. This all comes down to the fact that somebody forgot to flip a switch, apparently. Oh, um, no. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, oh. so the just for reasons of safety, the laser is, you know, turned off during its time being processed on the ground. Yeah, you don't want a laser to the face. Right. Yeah, so it was turned off, and someone had forgot to flip a switch to turn it back on. And so that's why... Well, so so wait, so if if the NDL, or if the uh, the landing LIDAR hadn't been turned on, presumably that means that somebody wasn't following a checklist. And so I wonder if this is, they wrote the checklist, they did everything and they just missed an item, or if it means that they wrote a checklist followed the checklist and then had to re-safe the laser for one reason or another. And, you know, cause they, they had to go do some late work on something and they didn't have a proper checklist or an, they had an incomplete checklist when they were closing up that work. That's, that's really disappointing. Yeah. Can you imagine being one of the folks who worked on that at the end and just going like, oh. And you're like, oh, man, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I see, mean, that's the thing is I, I don't think it's a I forgot. I think it's a like a checklist issue. Like I, I really think that they were probably doing something that wasn't quite by the book because something, you know, had to change. And the, you know, updating, writing the book is hard. Updating the book is harder. Hmm. I can't, I really hope it wasn't just one person forgetting that that would really be a, a miserable <laughs> outcome. But the, I mean, this is the first time that they've attempted this, so they're not going to make that mistake again. That'll be in the checklist. It's just one of those, you know, like growing pains, or at least as far as procedure goes, it's one of those procedural things that you now note to make sure that it's written in there in big bold letters. You know, don't forget to turn the lighter back on. Chubby in the chat when this first came out said, "Well, at least nobody left a red rag." In one of the fuel lines, True. which is a, yeah. a reference to Ariane, right? They yeah. they had a fail, uh, an engine failure because there was a whole rag stuffed in a line, which was intended to be a safety thing, but it it didn't come back out. Yeah, well, it's funny because this was intended to be a safety thing too. The the switch, yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. But this slightly off nominal type of orbit that they were in, uh, this was kind of a blessing in disguise because this caused them to try and turn on the LIDAR sooner than later. And since it didn't come on, that actually gave them time to make one more orbit and find some other means of landing. And so they did have uh, the NDL, which, as I said earlier, was the navigation Doppler radar. And that was one of the payloads, one of the experiments on board. The hard part was that they had to somehow get this. And this actually 
very much surprised me. I don't know how this is even done because I think of these things as being, you know, like separate vehicles that don't have anything to do with each other. They're just kind of like all stuck together. But they somehow were able to patch that Doppler radar into the navigation of the lander. Like somehow it was able to just use that LIDAR instead of its own. And this was, you know, all done on the fly over the space of, a, I guess, like an hour or so. Um, and from what the CEO said, this would normally take like several months. So uh, he had nothing but high praise for his team because they yeah. did, you know, perform very well under pressure. Um, and they were able to use the NDL. The downside of this is that because of this, they thought that deploying the EcoCam might actually interfere with this whole operation. So they decided to not deploy the EcoCam, but it will still be deployed. It just didn't happen during the descent. Still worth it, obviously considering, but yeah, disappointing nonetheless. Yeah. And they still will deploy, but I'm wondering how they're going to do that. Like it's on its side now. So how do you deploy EcoCam when the whole lander is pitched over on its side? Yeah. And you know, what? even once it's deployed, uh, the Eagle Cam team is going to have to basically write a whole new flight sequence because now they're going to have to presumably gain altitude before they can do anything rather than flying back away from the lander and just keeping it in view and making sure you don't slam into the surface. Like the thing's a free flyer, right? Like it was just intended to record some quick video and then presumably land and, and save the video until the lander was ready to accept it. Uh, so mm. it's kind of cool that they have to adapt like this. The only disappointing thing is since we're stuck on, well, so are the upload speeds affected by the fact that the high gain antenna is not available, right? Like when we're transmitting to the low gain antenna, presumably since the transmitters here on earth, our upload speeds, I guess, probably aren't affected but if they are like they're gonna have to send their uh their new code up to f you know flash the thing and and give mm -hmm. it a new uh a new job and they're gonna be competing with anything else that's going up but yeah actually i, I don't know if that's actually necessarily the case but isn't the eagle cam lander isn't it kind of like a little mini it's literally like a, a cubesat oh it's a cubesat okay they do show it often in and it's uh deployment it's deployer and so it doesn't – a lot of pictures that you see of it doesn't make it look like a CubeSat necessarily. But if I'm interpreting the spacecraft and assuming its orientation has the uh, the mini moons aimed down, it seems like it's at like the best possible panel it could <laughs> be at. Because if it was directly opposite the mini moons, then you wouldn't want to deploy because maybe it'll just go straight up and right back down and just hit your spacecraft. And if it was at one of the panels that are aimed – that are adjacent the to ground. the mini yeah. moons, then you're just going to shoot it right in the regolith. So instead, yeah, it's kind of beyond a nice little, you know, ballistic trajectory. As far as a landing orientation that's not the one intended, this is, I guess, the best one you could possibly have. Like, mm. <laughs> it's actually worked out. But uh, one thing that I thought was cool was that the NDL, right? This was flown with the goal of achieving a technology readiness level of six. And that's on a scale of one to nine. And in fact, they now have a nine because it had yep. to actually, you know, <laughs> perform the landing. So it passed with flying colors. And I thought that was kind of neat. Assuming that the radar wasn't part of the, the speed issue, which I don't, I don't think it would be, but like, <laughs> that's kind of a big assumption still there. Yeah. Which again, yeah, we'll just have to, I would like to get clarification on that. But yeah. So speaking of the antennas, 
the antennas on landing, apparently because of the low signal, they kept trying to automatically switch back and forth between two pairs. This is just something that the lander automatically does in order to get the best signal because I guess in a normal stance, it would have to use either two that would point in like one direction towards Earth and one direction away from the Earth. But if it's on its side, one direction, I suppose it points towards the ground and the other straight up. So I think that it just wasn't getting very good reception. And so it kept trying to go back and forth. And this actually prevented, apparently, the uploading of new software. But they did eventually work that out. But it looks like they're going to have to use the low-gain antennas. And the problem is that, yeah, this does limit the data uh, that can be transmitted or received. And uh, they have one week, roughly, until lunar night. I failed to look up exactly, exactly when that is uh, for the lander, but about one week. So... Not a lot of time. And I did forget to mention that in addition to the record of being the first spacecraft to start a cryogenic engine in deep space, uh, this is also the furthest south of any U.S. lander, and that's human or otherwise. So there is that qualifier for U.S. landers. So I suppose that some other nation probably puts something on the surface of the moon a little bit further south. Oh, I think they were just mentioning that it was an American lander anytime they could mention that it was an American lander and an American commercial lander that does, you know, from a private commercial entity doing American commercial mm-hmm. landings. But um, yeah, that for America. Funny. For America. <laughs> but uh, Chandrayaan-3 uh, had the record for a few months until this one. So Chandrayaan-3 was the one that landed close to, for, closest to the South Pole. And that was at 69 okay degrees south and so no one else has come that close Hmm. yeah okay so this might be the furthest south that's pretty cool within 300 kilometers i think i saw written yeah so does this make the lunar south pole harder to get to than the earth south pole because like so many people died while trying to get to the south pole you know during the what do they call it the heroic age of South Pole exploration. You're saying, does this make the lunar South Pole of the moon harder to get to? Yeah, because like on the one hand, you know, we're within 300 kilometers and this vehicle is still operational, even if it's on its side. Whereas like here on Earth, getting to the South Pole and failing meant you died of starvation usually. When it comes to, uh, yeah, the success rate of vehicles trying to reach the South Pole of each, um, we have a higher success rate of landing very close to the South Pole of the moon than the South Pole of Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it's I mean, 100 it, versus something that's not 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so like um, one of the early explorers, the the Norwegian, was he Norwegian? Amundsen. Oh, Amundsen. Amundsen. Yeah, Amundsen. Yeah, right. He used like uh, um, gas-powered sleds, uh, which was like a weird and novel thing. And they didn't really work that well. But yeah, okay, is that that's the uh machine getting to the south getting as close to the South Pole as you were talking about? <laughs> I was actually thinking the ships themselves. Any of them uh, that got kinda trapped in ice and couldn't make it all the way would would count as well as it failed. You know, not a lander but a yeah. sailor. <laughs> a machine. But I think then you inverted what you meant when you, you were saying that the you, you meant to say about the South Pole of Earth being harder to get to than the South Pole of the Moon, but I think you were saying the opposite. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's kind of... I mean, I I haven't really come to a conclusion in my own head, which... Because, oh. you know, it's really... <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but, like, I, I don't think I've decided which one I think actually is harder, because, you know, we still haven't gotten to the South Pole of the Moon. That's fair. Because I, I think that's interesting food for thought, though, 
the premise that it might actually be harder in terms of just success rate of vehicles. Definitely more expensive to go to the moon. So real quick uh, correction burn for myself. Last week, I had said that the Eagle Cam team's website said that uh, somebody from, or that Intuitive Machines had challenged them to make this vehicle, but I, I was like, no, 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 that's not right. It's actually Embry-Riddle had an alum who came in and paid them. Yeah, actually, it turns out that alum is one of the co-founders of uh, intuitive machines. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I saw that and I was like, Oh, I said a dumb thing. So <laughs> there you go. All right. So let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is the first? ISRO completes human rating of engine. The Indian Space Agency continues to make progress toward its crewed flight program, Gaganyaan, by human rating the CE-20 engine that powers the LVM-3 rocket's upper stage. The Hydrolox engine's final test was the seventh of a series of vacuum ignition tests, in turn part of a larger program that involved testing four engines over 39 various operating conditions, including both nominal and off-nominal scenarios. ISRO aims to launch the first Gaganyaan mission, G-1, which will be uncrewed in quarter two of 2024. Next, software error responsible for off-nominal payload delivery. Firefly Aerospace recently completed and submitted its mishap investigation report to the FAA, finding a software error to blame for placing payloads in the wrong orbit last December. An error in the Alpha Rocket's GNC software prevented its RCS system from receiving a necessary series of pulse commands before firing its second stage engine. As a result, the upper stage didn't reach the target orbit, although Lockheed Martin says they were still able to test their electronically steerable antenna demo, completing a number of objectives successfully. And then finally, Varda's capsule returns. On February 21st, Varda's mission finally concluded after months of delay. Its Winnebago 1 re-entry capsule successfully landed at the Utah Test and Training Range, delivering back to Earth its payload of microgravity pharmaceutical research. The deorbit was made possible by Rocket Lab's upper stage that also deorbited. This landing request was initially denied by the FAA back in September, forcing Varda to consider a landing in Australia. Luckily, Varda was given the green light for landing in Utah, which is much closer to its headquarters in California. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. I haven't done that in a while. Uh, we do have a correction from Espen Urkdal or Urkadal. Um, and this is about a modification that was made to a Falcon 9 fairing, right? Um, in order to refuel the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. We were looking for some sort of an entry point. What was it we called it? Or they called it. Someone called it the Gigador. The Gigador. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah. If, I, I don't know if we were actually saying that the Gigador was for was involved in the refueling of this. Because oh, you're right. That was just for late access. Okay, right. Because yeah, it was originally and... yeah. Gigador was originally brought up during uh, the Cygnus launch, so you could still get that last. I'm thinking of Cygnus. Access. Okay, yeah. That's why I was wrong. Yeah. But but you are correct though that IM one seemed to have the same type of fairing where it had this little black kind of panels, you know, that look like it could move on the top of the fairing. And so I guess we had referred to the fairing, that, that you know, Gigador as allowing for the fueling of the um, of uh, the Nova Sea Lander while it was still on the pad. But I don't think we said that. I think that the connection was that it looked like it was the same set of fairings that had been modified to add the door or the same on the IM-1 launch. And so we're like, yeah, it's kind of interesting that like, you know, now this set of fairings is like totally different. But I kind of protest 
the spaceflight now tweet that says that it was a modification to the second stage because you can clearly see in some of the photos we were looking at you can clearly see that there are propellant lines connected to the fairing like unless i i'm like totally misunderstanding what's going on here could those lines be like power and vacuum and that kind of stuff going to the fairing and not actually propellant i mean might be sure looks like propellant lines but oh i you know me i couldn't <laughs> I couldn't tell you what I couldn't tell you one hose from another, you know. <laughs> but I see, I see what you mean though, because yeah, I, I, I'm now remembering us talking about and like looking at the. There were better pictures than in this thread uh, that were showing piping going into the umbilicals going into the fairing part. And then just real quick, uh, shout out to Evan Cook, uh, who did not get uh, credit for their correct answer to uh, my last TWISIF about the uh, failed Intelsat 708 launch, uh, episode 446. So uh, sorry that went through our email and uh, uh, I missed it, but uh, uh, good job. You got it. <laughs> so then let's move right along to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have four winners. We have the Greek, Dennis O, Cy Kyle, and Chris S. And they all get bonus points. And the clue was technically that was highly elliptical. And I didn't know what the event was, but I saw a guest pretty early on and I was like, oh, I bet that's right because that's a cool clue and the guest fits perfectly. So mm. at any rate, what is the event that is technically highly elliptical? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for real though, like I totally thought that this clue was going to go off into left field and four people nailed it exactly why yeah. I picked the clue. So that makes me very happy. Okay. This week in spaceflight history is the 2nd of March, 1956. It was Atlas Centaur or AC5s. It was Atlas Centaur's fifth flight, which uh, didn't go very far. Uh, that's the AC5 mission. So this, uh, again, is the fifth flight of Atlas Centaur. Uh, maybe you might remember um, the first Atlas Centaur flight uh, that failed due to um, an insulation panel that was intended to be ejected. Did it fall off early or did it not separate? I think it fell off too early. I think it had like uh, bands that stretched too much and let it let it pop off. But anyway, uh, if you remember that, that was almost exactly three years before AC5. So that that's the first flight. The second flight uh, was successful, but then the third and fourth failed after Centaur separated from Atlas. And now we get to the fifth flight uh, that failed uh, significantly earlier than that. Uh, so before we talk about the failure, um, this uh, flight had on board a payload uh, called a quote unquote dynamic model of surveyor. Um, and this orbit was, uh, highly elliptical. Um, it was actually practicing a lunar transfer orbit. Um, so the surveyor model was named SD1 and it didn't have much on board. It had some instrumentation that was still in R and D as well as an S band transponder. And it's one of the things they were testing were, you know, how is surveyor going to work? Um, but they were also testing a bunch of other things. Uh, one of the sources that I have for this week is a PDF. The link doesn't go straight to a PDF, but it's got a little summary. And to see the full thing, you, you open a PDF that is the whole report from this failure. And it's a very, very thorough report. Like it's really good. Um, it's got 
like photos and drawings and a bunch of charts uh, of their test data trying to replicate the issue. But it also has a really good summary of what the mission was intended to do. And so they had a bunch of these different uh, goals just validating the whole Atlas Centaur uh, surveyor system. So one of the things that they were looking at was the payload separation system. Does this work the way it's supposed to? Can we get up to a lunar transfer orbit and do that accurately and successfully. Um, that orbit was very, very elliptical. It was 104 by 575,000 miles. That's 167 kilometers by almost a million kilometers, uh, 926,625 kilometers. Really, really high orbit. I mean, you're practicing going to the moon, right? Like, go figure. <laughs> and this was also a pretty demanding mission for Centaur. Centaur had a really complex sequence of events that it would perform. And this was back in 1965. Um, after it separated from the payload, it actually was going to turn around and point at Earth and make sure that it could still uh, talk to the ground. And then it was actually going to do an orbit lowering maneuver. So this was a blowdown, not an engine burn. So they were just going to dump all of their propellant out through the engine nozzle without igniting it. Um, so they weren't going to get, you know, super high thrust, but it was going to make sure that that thing was passivated. I'm assuming they didn't want any more propellants uh, on board than necessary. Um, and it lowered the orbit a little bit so that the thing would deorbit a little earlier. And of course, it never needed to deorbit, or rather, it deorbited very rapidly. So it lifted off the pad, but only got a few feet uh, before the booster engine shut down, it slammed into the pad, and exploded. Interestingly enough, this was the last pad explosion, according to Wikipedia, the last pad explosion at the Cape until 2016, when Amos 6 exploded on the pad. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty crazy. So what happened? They had some early assumptions that they were able to discount pretty quickly. So maybe the staging valve, uh, closed when it shouldn't have, uh, presumably due to damage. The staging valve is the one that closes before they drop off those, uh, booster engines. I'll talk more about in a second. Maybe the low pressure ducting actually ruptured. Uh, maybe there was a blockage in the low pressure ducting. Um, maybe one of the fill valves didn't close all the way. And so they just sprayed propellant out the fill valve instead of powering the engines. Uh, maybe they had some uh, electrical issues and wound up sending a booster cutoff signal uh, that they didn't intend to. And so the booster engine shut down. But all these things were pretty clearly not the cause. It did happen to be a valve, but just not the staging valve. So let me describe these two boosters or these these two valves that influence the booster engines. In the show notes, I'm going to have a nice diagram of the propellant system and then some really lovely, uh, like, not engineering drawings, uh, but drawings of the parts themselves, not in schematic form. Uh, so there, there are these two valves that you have to be aware of. One is the pre-valve and one is the staging valve. So if you've got the tank right at where the pipe comes out of the tank, simplest language I know, 
that right as it comes out, there is a pre-valve that you can open and close. And the idea is that this is going to be opened before the launch and stay open. Uh, just below that is the fuel staging valve. And there, there's one of these valves on each side of the fuel and the liquid oxygen. So you've got the pre-valve and then right below that is the staging valve. They're very, very different valves. So the, the pre-valves, the fuel and liquid oxygen pre-valves are butterfly valves. Um, this is a pretty common valve type. You basically have, uh, you know, a cylindrical pipe with a circular flap in it that can rotate uh, inside the pipe. And if you rotate it so that it's touching the sides, it's closed. If you rotate it so that it's presenting just one edge to the oncoming liquid, it's open. Uh, the staging valve is much more complicated. It uses a poppet, uh, which is a really fun word to be mixed in with uh <laughs> Uh, with all these, you know, serious engineering terms and, you know, pop it to me just sounds, um, Dickensian. Uh, but basically it's, it's a hole with a cone that gets shoved into the hole. Like that's, that's as complicated as it really gets. I mean, it gets much more complicated, but that's as, that's as simple as you can describe it. And so they expected there were going to be some issues. There's a thing called a spider inside the staging valve that, uh, helps support one of the structures. And I thought maybe if this gets, bent, uh, the poppet can close early and, and all these, uh, all these different failure scenarios, but that didn't end up being the issue. So, right. Of these two valves, we're talking about the higher one, the one that's closer to the fuel supply. And it's a, it's a simple butterfly valve. Oh yeah. And I guess I didn't specifically mention this. If you don't remember, uh, Atlas is a very cool rocket because it has three engines, a sustainer engine in the middle, and then two booster engines on the side. And once you get up above a certain speed, you don't need all the thrust of three engines. And so they stage, but instead of dropping fuel tanks, they're just dropping two of the engines. And so that's why you have the staging valve is so that you can close off your fuel supply and you don't wind up losing fuel out of the hole where a booster used to be. So the evidence that tells them what actually happened. The low pressure booster fuel ducts collapsed. So by low pressure, we mean everything before the turbo pumps. And for Atlas, there's not a lot before the, the turbo pumps, uh, at least on, on the fuel side, uh, on the, on the booster fuel side, because the sustainer and the boosters have separate uh, fuel systems, separate propellant systems. On the booster fuel side, you've got the pre-valve, the staging valve. You also have a fill and drain valve that's used to actually fill the tanks. And then after that, all you have is the two turbo pumps. So the low, the low pressure booster fuel ducts, there's just not a lot there. And they collapsed. They, you know, are low pressure relative to after the turbo pumps, but they're not supposed to be that low pressure. And in this case, they got much lower pressure. They, you know, basically pulled a partial vacuum. And so they crunched in just like, you know, a, a beer can. If you, I, th I think if you take a, a soda can or a beer can, you put it, what is it? You like fill it with hot water or you put, you put a, a match in it and then you put the, the opening down into water or something like there, there's a, a science demo, right? Where you can like get, you can crumple an aluminum can and it shows how easy it is to 
crumple it, but it can hold very, very high temp, uh, very high pressures. It's only strong in one of those directions. But yeah, these things just, they crumpled, but they didn't rupture. Um, which, which is good. But the question is, why are they like that? Well, okay. So some more evidence, uh, when they, you know, dug the engine compartment out of the debris on the pad, they found the, the fuel pre-valve for the boosters was actually closed, which is suspicious, uh, because A, the engine shouldn't run at all if it's closed, and B, because the telemetry from the time that the rocket was sitting on the pad said that it was open. So that that's weird. They they also found like some uh unknown liquid inside part of I think the fuel staging the the fuel staging valve, uh, but it turned out to just be a mixture of their firefighting water solution, right? It's water with probably like soap or something in it uh, so that it wets easier. But it was, uh, yeah, the firefighting water and some fuel got in there and they mm-hmm. like had to send it off to the lab to figure out exactly what it was, but it was innocuous, right? That, that's, that's from after the, the crash. So this, this pre-valve is closed and they're pretty sure that that's what caused uh, the booster engines to shut down and specifically the booster engine shut down, but the sustainer engine didn't. And the, the testing that they initially did showed that you could actually, uh, actuate the valve and have it, the, the switch click close saying that it, it was open. The switch closes when <laughs> the valve is open. That's unfortunate. But you could have this switch say, yes, it's open. The valve is open, but the valve hadn't quite got to the locked open position. Um, so the thought is it's, it's gotta be due to this actuation not happening all the way. The problem is that if the valve is locked open, and we're not, you know, at this point, they're not sure if it was locked or isn't. They just found it's ambiguous whether it was or not. So if the valve is fully locked open, uh, it actually takes 10 times the amount of torque that moving fuel can provide to actually get that valve to pop out of the lock and close. And of course, like, you know, the a butterfly valve isn't completely... Uh, invisible to the fluid flowing around it. And in this case, the butterfly valve, uh, actuated through a range such that it did preferentially want to close when it was open. So they had it lock. The problem is, right? So if it's, if it's locked open, it can't close without like additional damage happening first. The problem is that if it's not locked, it only has to be four degrees away from its locked position. And the amount of torque provided by the fuel rushing past would actually slam that valve shut in 800 milliseconds, right? Eight tenths of a second. That's fast enough that the valve would have closed before the vehicle lifted off. So that can't be the issue either. (laughs) There's this very narrow window where you could actually have that pre-valve stay open for a certain amount of time and then close. Uh, otherwise it's, it's very binary and they didn't actually identify exactly where it would have to be. They just knew that it, it had to be within four degrees of being locked, but not locked. And I, I think 
from my reading, I think NASA said, basically decided there's something more going on here. It's not like it was three degrees off of being locked. Uh, some other weirdness has to be happening here. Okay. So, uh, let's talk a little bit more about how this valve works. So, right. It's, it's a butterfly valve, which means that there is like an axle that sticks out of the side of, uh, the duct. And if you turn that axle left or right, clockwise or counterclockwise, you'll get the valve to open or close. And so, they actuated this remotely using a solenoid. So the solenoid is on, it's a longitudinal solenoid. It pops in and out just like a normal solenoid. Um, it's, uh, pneumatically actuated. And on the end of the piston is a, uh, a swing arm, or they call it a crank arm, uh, that converts that lateral movement to a rotational movement. And so in the show notes, I'll have some really lovely photos that they have of this whole assembly. Like there's, there's some really good imagery, um, including the actual actuator that was in this crash and recovered. Uh, and it's in remarkably good condition for having slammed into a pad face first, I guess being surrounded by a bunch of, uh, steel is, is helpful. Okay. So getting down to the root cause, there are some things that seem obvious, uh, one thing that they suggested was surge pressures. So like we know how much torque is exerted by normal fluid or uh, fuel flow. What about abnormal fuel flow? That's a possibility. Uh, or false signals. Well, they eliminated, uh, a Beco signal being sent, but you know, maybe there's some other, um, signal that could have interrupted the actuation of this valve or, you know, something, but it actually seems like what's most likely is that there was a pre-existing condition that actually led to this, led to this failure. NASA has a bunch of these valves on hand and they said that, uh, they have widely varying, uh, like closing times. So if you start the timer when you send the signal and you stop the timer when it actually closes, they, that amount of time really varies um, from valve to valve. But each valve in and of itself compared to multiple actuations of the same valve are surprisingly consistent. Uh, like it, it sounds like somebody when it looked up the numbers and was like, Hey, whoa, that's weird. How, how, uh, consistent these things are within themselves. So two days before the launch, they had, uh, some rehearsal, like a wet dress rehearsal or a fill test or something, but they wound up opening and closing the valve and it opened and closed in 0.9 seconds on the day of the launch. It actually took 2.1 seconds for the valve to open. If they would have been paying attention, that would have been a danger sign. Uh, <laughs> if, if these things are super reliable, I, I would suspect that anybody who knew that fact and was looking would have said, Hey, wait a minute. So like to give you an idea of the kind of variety, both 0.9 and 2.1 seconds were in spec for the valves. Isn't that crazy? Um, <laughs> But of course, you know, 2.1 seconds is quote unquote out of spec for this particular valve. And they couldn't figure out exactly why it didn't close as quickly as it should have. And they weren't able to confirm that that was the reason that it didn't latch all the way closed, presumably. 
they were able to rule out a bunch of different things that might have uh, helped pop the valve open. Uh, they looked at pressure pulses from the quote unique flame buckets at uh, pad 36A. I don't know what was unique about them, but uh, apparently that was a concern that maybe uh, you know reflected energy might have uh, might have jiggled something loose. I guess uh, they also uh, analyzed unloading spring back from the launcher and the vehicle as they separated, and maybe there was some vibration or some flexing that. Uh, might have uh, impacted one of these parts. Uh, they also were able to rule out uh, high-pressure venting from the pneumatic system uh, at liftoff. Maybe as the pneumatic system separates, maybe you know there was some echoes in the line as as the high pressure vented uh, that might have caused this actuator to pop back open or something. Like they really actually could not figure out what happened uh, to cause this valve to close, but they're pretty confident that the valve closing was the issue. So they issued uh, some corrective actions for this exact failure. Ultimately, they removed the solenoid and reverted to manual operation of the valve. Um, so once they have uh, done all the things that they can with the pneumatic system, they send some unlucky person out to reach in and pull the lever. But they didn't go straight to that solution. They actually had an interim solution uh, that allowed them to fly the atlases that they had without delaying any upcoming missions. So the final fix was really uh, elegant and convinces you just by looking at it that it is fail-proof. So there's this beautiful aluminum handle uh, that has um, like a, a, a charcoal drawing in uh, in the failure report. So like it it's not a black and white line drawing like there's shading in this image it's really beautiful um mm. and so the handle basically clamps onto the axle coming out of the valve I, it's not called an axle i don't think uh, a shaft i think is what it's called um and so the the end of the shaft is square and so this handle like clamps onto it and then the the handle that you pull on is at like a slight angle so that it's like in a good position to actually have a human reach in there and grab it and the the whole thing is is roughly square it's got nice sharp edges but they like round it over the edges on the part that a person touches it it really is nice but the part that surrounds the uh top of the shaft there are four bolt holes and you put bolts into those holes and those bolts screw into this square or this rectangular protrusion out of the top uh of the pre-valve assembly um and in one position two bolts go in uh, through two bolt holes. And in the other position, the other two bolt holes go through. And so it's, it's really nice because I, I think they only have one set of holes. No, they actually have two set of threaded holes in the assembly, but by having two separate pairs, one that's used when it's open and one that's used when it's closed, they get to have like a limit pin, uh, so that you can only turn it so far. And then I think an added bonus is that the holes that are not in use in the handle, they hang over the side. So it's not even that you can put the bolt in and it'll bottom out against the assembly. If you put that bolt in, it's going to be dangling at the other end and you can see it. And I think that's a really good, like uh failure proof kind of design. 
I, I really like this, uh, this handle that they designed. I, I haven't been particularly attracted, uh, to drawings of handles before, but this, this is a, a very lovely drawing that I really like. So the, the interim solution, uh, was basically they disconnected the pneumatic, uh, solenoid or, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they, that they, uh, disconnected the pneumatic system. So instead they would have to pull it open by hand. They don't have this nice handle yet. <laughs> uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure how they actually, uh, got the thing open. Um, but there's what they call a safety wedge, um, that actually slips in behind part of the actuator so that it cannot close again. And then they drive two bolts, uh, through the wedge, I believe, uh, almost like cotter pins, um, so that the, the wedge goes on one side, the pins go on the other and they entrap part of the mechanism. Um, but yeah, so like this was installed pretty late in the launch sequence. Uh, they'd have somebody run out with, you know, presumably a screwdriver and literally put this wedge in so that the valve would remain open. There were a number of other, uh, fixes that they implemented, uh, uh, corrective actions, uh, that addressed things that were not failures, but were a little concerning and they wanted to make sure they wouldn't become failures. So not only did they uh, revert to this earlier manual design for the valves uh, on the boosters, they also reverted um, the sustainer pre-valves. The sustainer wasn't implicated in this failure. It was running the whole time. Seems like a nice just-in-case kind of thing. It, it also is nice to have the same procedure for every thing that you can, right? Like use the same size of screw whenever you can. They also shimmed the staging valve. So remember that the staging valve has sort of a, like a cone that presses up against a hole kind of a situation. And, uh, they shimmed that so that it started farther open. I think it, it's not super clear to me that staging valve was not something that I went and looked into, uh, cause it, it wasn't an issue, but they, they shimmed it by a quarter of an inch and, uh, their testing showed that that quarter of an inch actually dramatically changed, uh, the amount of force that it took for that thing to close early. Um, they also decided to add a procedure to image the staging valves on upcoming launches. Uh, so they, you know, would do like x-ray imagery just to take a look and see exactly what the distances were inside the valve. AC6, the next mission, was actually x-ray imaged while it was on a launch pad, which is pretty fun. And then the, uh, the ducting that collapsed, they believe that this sort of collapse was possible due to procedures that wound up weakening the ducts. So the idea is as they're opening and closing the pre-valve, um, during their, uh, dress rehearsals, I guess, they will first have fuel loaded into the system and then they'll close the pre-valve. The fuel that's not inside the tank will start to drain out of the fill drain ports. And when that happens, it's pulling a vacuum behind it as the fuel is flowing out, right? Well, then if they open the valve again, they're basically going to have that the vacuum suddenly be filled with fuel coming down from 
uh, from the tanks. And that onrush, that sudden change in pressure may have stressed the ducting. It kind of reminds me of the idea of like water hammer in pipes. Uh, although it's, you know, not a, a longitudinal issue. It's where, where you have a, a bend in the pipe. It's sort of a, a lateral issue pressing out of the pipe. But yeah, so that might have weakened the ducts and that might have allowed the collapse to happen. And so what they decided to do was just change the way that they did their uh, fuel loading and fuel draining procedures just to make sure that this wouldn't happen again. Which which is fun because like the duct weakening didn't fail. Like the ducts did not rupture, right, when um when this happened. So like this is really a let's make sure this isn't a problem, even though we don't exactly have a failure mode that we have that's very super likely. Just let's not weaken the ducts if we don't have to. And uh, I totally think that's uh, that's prudent and smart. But there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history, uh, the failure of AC5. Yeah, lots of uh, vowels to look at. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome twist if this week, Ben. Good clue, too. I like it. Um, so the date range for next week's event is the 5th of March through the 11th. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2001... The first 10-person space flight. There's got, I mean, there has to be a catch to that one because uh, 10 people right. don't go up all at right. once. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> yeah, at least not yet. Uh, well, okay. So if you have a guess as to what that clue was referring to, uh, you can email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon using the hashtag ThisWeekSF. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash Discord for an invite to our Discord server and just type slash TWSF to hand your guest directly to our Tombot. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so let's do the upcoming spaceflight events and thank you to Launch Library 2 which is where we start our research each week. Uh, we have six events, and I think most of them launches except for one. But what's the first launch, Ben? Yeah, so first up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 640. Uh, this is going to be a CAPE launch. They're flying out of Slick 40 sometime between Wednesday, February 28th at 1600 hours and 1931 hours uh, UTC. And next up, we've got a Soyuz 21A with a frigate M upper stage. And now thanks to Ben, you know what the difference between the different frigates are. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> In addition to being parasocial or whatever type of uh, social parasites oh, uh, that they are. Klept- kleptoparasitic. Oh, yeah. kleptoparasitic. Thank you. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so this will be taking a Meteor M, uh, or sorry, the Meteor M uh, number Numbers two through four, so I assume that this is uh, uh, multiple payloads. Uh, otherwise, it's number two dash four. But one way or another, it's going to be taking a, a Russian uh, meteorological satellite uh, sun synchronous on Thursday, February 29th, uh, with an instantaneous launch at 054326 UTC, uh, launching out of Vostochny. So next up on the 29th, we have the launch of the Long March 3, and this is the BE variant, which is an enhanced version to send satellites very often to GEO, so maybe that's where this payload is going, but we don't know what the payload is. But the launch window is from 1253 UTC through 1323 UTC, and it's launching from Xichang Satellite Launch Center from Launch Complex. Two, so I guess just be aware of that, but we don't know what the payload is. After that is a launch where we definitely do know the payload. So this is another Falcon 9 Block 5 launching crew eight, uh, headed up to the ISS. On board will be Matthew Dominic, Michael Barrett, uh, Jeanette Epps, and Alexander Grabenkin. 
They are going to be launching on Friday, March 1st at 0504 hours UTC. There will be coverage on SCTV of the rendezvous and docking, well, the launch, as well as the rendezvous and docking. Uh, they will be getting there on Saturday, March the 2nd at 5 a.m. is when they're starting the coverage. Uh, docking is scheduled uh, for approximately 7 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, they're, they're saying that it might actually not be then. It might be earlier or later. Um, but you will be able to tell because they will start the uh, coverage an hour and 45 minutes uh, before they're going to dock. So if you hop on at 5 a.m. and you're really excited and the coverage hasn't started, just know that the rendezvous and docking is going to be delayed as well. And then next we have a uh, an interesting social media space event. And so a uh, hat tip to Andrew Z who uh, Put this on our radar and also sends us in general a lot of awesome links to uh, cool stories and other things that are happening in spaceflight. And so, yeah, so this is an ISRO Q&A uh, with the uh, the director of the Indian Space Agency, uh, S. Samanth. And so we'll have the uh, the links and or the details, but essentially he will be hosting a live session on ISRO's Instagram and YouTube channel on March 2nd. And we'll be answering questions uh, submitted by... The public, and so you can use a particular hashtag, uh, ask Somanth Isro, no spaces, uh, commenting on their Facebook or YouTube, or you can uh, DM them on Instagram and see if you can get those questions about uh, Indian spaceflight answered. Finally, we have the launch of another Falcon 9, but this one is with Transporter 10. So, uh, yeah, another transporter mission uh, with a whole bunch of microsatellites and nanosatellites going to a sun-synchronous orbit, uh, but we don't know the uh, liftoff time, but it'll be lifting off sometime on the 4th. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that's on a Falcon 9 Block 5 uh, launching from Vandenberg from Space Launch Complex 4E. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to do with the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jakey's and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Citronaut Deniso, Mr. Cesium, Mike, Colin Delta V, Jay Geit, uh, Stash I Am, Chris S., and Chubby for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, just leave us a review wherever you listen you can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign and affiliate links get in touch find links to our mailing list discord server and mastodon account at the orbitalmechanics.com slash about or you can skip all that by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we'll see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you.